You can go to Chinatown in New York City and you can walk by a massive amount of street vendors and you can come to a street vendor who has watches and see some watches that look very much like Rolex watches. Don't buy a fake Rolex watch for your boss. And this morning I really want to help us see that God has not called us to buy fake Rolexes. The book of Genesis, of course, opens with a literal bang almost. It's God comes on the scene in chapter 1 and He, in the beginning, God, and He creates these things in such an instantaneous way and He creates man in His image and He tells man to be fruitful and multiply and to continue this dominion and he expands on that in chapter 2 of what that looked like and more of their responsibility. And then we get to chapter 3 and the rebellion of, and sin of, of mankind and the fake Rolex that Satan offers. And then in chapter 4 you have Cain and Abel and the very first murder, the image of God, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible thing as Cain murders his brother Abel. And then Genesis chapter 5, you have the books of the generations. People dying, people dying, people dying, people dying. Genesis 6, sin comes to such a, a peak here that God sends a flood through Noah. And God then, uh, uh, after He wipes out sin uh, here, He remembers Noah and, and, he, and He makes a covenant with Noah. And then He continues this command again, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And you find out that sin's still there. You get to chapter 10 and again you have the generations. And chapter 11 you have people here showing what's in their hearts here as they unite and try to build a name for themselves against God and do their own thing. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis 12, God says these words through Moses. Now the Lord had said to Abram, so at the end of chapter 11, you read about this particular family from one of Noah's sons, Shem, and he traces it down to, uh, to, uh, to, to Abraham, and God speaks to him and says, Get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless you, and curse them that curses you. And your name shall all families of the earth be blessed. And then in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed will I give this land. And this idea of a place for God's people um, comes up as a prominent theme in the book of Genesis in chapter 13 and verse 14. He tells Abraham again, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, to you will I give it and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall your seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. And there's this drumbeat, this pattern of the land. He appears to Abraham again, God does, and makes a covenant with him that God says, I'm going to do this unconditionally. It's going to happen. And in chapter 15, verse 5 through 7, he tells him, look toward heaven, look at the stars. And God says, so shall your seed be in Genesis 15.5. And Abram believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. And God said to him, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. And later in 
Verse 13, he says, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they shall serve them, they shall afflict them four hundred years. And verse 18, he says, To your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river of the Euphrates. Over and over again, you get to chapter 17 and verse 7 and 8. God tells him again, I will establish my covenant and, and you're going to have a seed, a family in verse 8, and I will give to you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And it happens again in chapter 23 and this is comes upon... Um, uh, Sarah and Abraham again in chapter 23 and verse 17 through 20. Um, Abraham purchases a piece of land, a plot of land. And there in that plot of land, he purchases in the promised land in Canaan, he uses as a cave to bury his descendants in his family line. So now they have a place, a spot, their own property in the land. And you get to Genesis chapter 25. And in Genesis chapter 25, this, this, this concept take, uh, is up again here. And now with Esau in chapter 25, verse 7 through 11, Abraham is buried there in this cave and his sons, verse 9, chapter 25, Isaac and Ishmael bury him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre. And God's giving him this land here, but they don't have the fullness of it yet. But they have a piece of property there. And then you come across chapter 28, verse 3 and 4, where God tells Isaac's son Jacob, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, multiply you, that you may be a multitude of people, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you, and to your seed with you, that you may inherit the land wherein you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And it builds... And it builds in chapter 28, verses 13 through 17. He says the same thing and, and the multiplication of the seed and, and the land again. And God assures him, I'm going to do this. And then you turn over a few chapters to chapter 35. It's later on and Jacob is growing his family. And verse 9, the Lord appears to Jacob again and God says, I'm going to call you Israel. It reminds him of who he is, God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply, 35.11. A nation and a company of nations shall be of you, and kings shall come out of your loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to you I will give it, and to your seed after you will I give the land. And then you get to the story of Joseph. And Joseph here, one of the younger of, of Jacob's sons, you know the story of how uh, God gave him a dream that his other brothers and his family members would, would one day bow down to him uh, here and he would have a place of authority over them and there would come a time um, when they would, um, uh, when, when they would uh, be racked by jealousy of that and they would sell Joseph and he would be forgotten. And he goes and he serves his Potiphar's Steward of his house, and you remember the false accusations there, and he ends up from a high point now going to prison. And there in prison he flourishes, and the Bible says, but the Lord was with him. And then comes across two men from Pharaoh's court who 
serve Pharaoh, and they had a dream they couldn't uh, explain, and and uh, they ask Joseph, and Joseph says, "I can tell you the meaning of this dream because God is with me. God interprets dreams." And they said, "Sure, tell us what it is, and when we get out, we'll go tell Pharaoh about you, and you will not be forgotten." And the end of that chapter says, "But Joseph was forgotten. You ever felt alone, forgotten?" You know the story, eventually they remember, and the Pharaoh has a dream, and they say, oh yeah, I remember that guy in prison who told us the dream, and he answered it, and perhaps he could answer your dream, Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh calls Joseph out of prison, he stands before him, and, and, and Joseph interprets the dream, and he gives advice on what to do with the famine in Egypt, and Joseph is exalted again. This famine is affecting other places in the world, and one of the places it affects is the land where Joseph's family, who he doesn't know anything about, doesn't know if they're alive, doesn't know if they're dead, doesn't know where they are, and God uses this famine to bring the family to Egypt to find food for them. Joseph recognizes the brothers when they come in, and he tests them, and he tests them, and eventually he reveals himself to them as their their brother, and things have changed, and we get... Um, uh, jo- Jacob has a hard time believing it. My my son, who I thought was dead, and they told me he was dead. He's alive. And then we come, and Jacob brings his family to Egypt, and they reside there in the land of Goshen. And Jacob here is a different man than when he first appeared in the book of Genesis. He's a man who's humble. He's tender to the Lord. He's resting in his promises. And in Genesis 49, Jacob realizes that he's about to die. He passes on blessings to each of his sons and grandsons, uh, except for Simeon. And in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph buries his father. He had only seen him for 17 years. He had an experience of living with his family there in Egypt for 17 years. And Genesis 50 and verse... Twelve, his sons did to him according as he commanded him. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with a field for possession of a burying place of Ephron the Ephrite, Hittite, before Mamre. And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. God gave him 17 years with his father. Besides the 17 years he had earlier, growing up, before he was sold into slavery. Joseph here is at a point in his life where he saw God do amazing things and he saw amazing lows. Right? The book of Genesis and probably all of the books here of the, of the Pentateuch, the five books of the law here written by Moses, were probably written as, as Israel later on is poised on the plain of Moab to go into the promised land during the 40 years of wilderness. God gives these instructions. And God gives these instructions and this story here to Moses to strengthen the people of Israel to help them understand where their roots were, where God was going, and that He would not abandon His promise. And this morning, I want to speak to you in the topic here of sending your bones on ahead. Sending your bones on ahead. In Genesis chapter 50 again, 
As Bruce read, you're familiar with the story. This closes the book of Genesis here, the book of beginnings here. Um, this is this is a very important chapter because it leads us in anticipation and it tells us that when you live in the promises of God and only then when you live in the promises of God, you can trust Him in the days that you have here. You can trust Him in the days that you have here. And by that I mean on this planet. In Babylon. And 1 through 14, they had buried their father the 17 years. And then you notice in verse 17 that there is an issue that arises in the story. Dad's dead. And now the brothers, you know, who they confess their sin against their brother, but they don't really trust Joseph here. And they say, you know what? Uh, we need to find, we need to warn Joseph about taking vengeance upon us. And so in, they, 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 they send messengers to Joseph. They're scared to talk to him themselves. And they say, your father did command before he died, saying, and commentators divided us of whether this is true or not. So shall you say to Joseph, forgive, I pray you now, the trespass of your father and their sin, for they did to you evil. And now we pray you, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph hears this, and it melts him. He's broken. He weeps. doesn't tell us why he's broken. Perhaps he's broken because he realizes that now he's got to kind of be like their father. He's got to take that role. Or perhaps it's, guys, really? That's what you think I am? <laughs> I'm going to come after you? I mean, 17 years and I've been waiting. 17 years to come after you? No, no. I don't know what it is here. I get a sense, though, that it is a, a sense of what is ahead here in the future. He weeps. And notice verse 18, his brethren also went and fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we be your servants. We'll do whatever you ask us to, Joseph. Just don't kill us. No vengeance. And I want you to see Joseph's response in verse 19. Because this is the, this is, this is what it means to trust God in the days that you are here. Joseph says this in verse 19. Fear not. For am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Now with that statement, what he says is extremely profound. They think that he is going to enact vengeance on them. And Joseph says, don't worry, that's God's job. Fear not, am I in the place of God? Now I wonder... Why could Joseph say that? The reason Joseph could say that is the very next verse. Because Joseph understands that what defines him and what defines who he is is not what people have done to him. Listen. But rather it is defined by what God has worked through that. Get a hold of that truth. What defines him is not what people have done to him, but what God has done through that. All of you are at different points in your life where people have done wrong to you, and I'm sure, by the way, we've all done wrong to other people here. But I'm speaking to you as people who may have been sinned against in this lifetime. You have suffered trouble. And perhaps the things that have been done to you are what you have taken to define you. And you know what happens when that happens? You become a person with a hope about this big. 
You become a person who is moved more by the negative things, who, who become, can become and have the uh, propensity to become very bitter. Whatever it might be. Whether that was a family member, a close friend who betrayed you, close relationships. Trust Him in the days that you have here by understanding that you are not in the place of God and you are defined by God's work through that situation that He allowed to come your way. And so what is Joseph's response? But as for you, you thought evil against me. He doesn't mince words here. He's clear. He understands what, was go- what, what happened and their intents there in that day in the past. But he says this. Here's what really matters. Not what you did to me, but what God did through it. Now if you have that perspective... And by the way, that doesn't mean that you don't need to have boundaries in life for people who have, who have hurt you and have wronged you. Um, there might be wise to put up some boundaries for people who will manipulate and continue to abuse. But what he's saying there is this. He's not downplaying the hurt, right? He's honest about it. That was evil, right? But I think something had happened in his heart between him and the Lord first so they could do this horizontally with his brothers, right? You meant evil, but what? But God meant it to good to bring to pass as it is this day. While we're here right now, we're just proof, this is evidence that God's at work here to save many or much people alive. So he's defined by God's work, not his opponents. He could forgive because he could trust God. What they did was overruled by God and used by God in order to produce something that was better than any of them could imagine. And so Joseph is able to embrace his brothers. He's able to reach out with his open hands because he has been captured not by bitterness and the things that were done to him, but he's been captured and put that bitterness, that, that what was done to him, puts that in perspective because he's captured by the blessing of God. That's what's different here. And now he can comfort others because he's been comforted by God. He's found that comfort. He can care for them because uh, for, for even those who wronged him because he is, understands he's been cared well by God. And if there's something in your life here in these days here where you have been hurt, you cannot dwell on the hurt. You have to instead understand that God is using this for a greater purpose and dwell on that. And when that fills the balloon, there's not room for the other bitterness here. Notice in verse 22. I'll skip, look, look, verse 21. Now therefore, fear you not, I will nourish, I will provide, I will shepherd you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Because he could trust God in the days that he was here on this earth. And verse 22 says, And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. Verse 23 gives us an insight into some of the ways that God continued to bless Joseph, show that God was with him. He has great grandkids. He saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of his other son, Melchor, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. That was a picture there. Uh, being brought up on somebody's knees here would be a picture of, of he adopted them like his own kids. 
There's a future generation. You get the sense here of a joy that Joseph is able to have here in his final days. And these are the days that he is here on this earth. But Joseph is not just looking in the present. Joseph wants his present and what will happen in the future to be driven and staked in the days that he will have there beyond this life. And this is where verses 24 through 26 come in. Joseph said to his brethren, and here he's um, uh, speaking to the brethren there, Zadie, of all, all his relatives here, still around. He's, he's an old man ready to die. Withered, probably not much hair left. Feeble, frail. Made a walk with God. He says, I die. And God will surely visit you. That's the idea of the blessing of God, His presence. And bring you out of this land, to the land which He swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That promise was drilled deep in His heart. And Joseph took an oath, a promise of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, come to you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. I want us to see secondly here, is to trust Him in your days there, beyond your life here. He lives to a full age of 110 years, which in the Egyptian culture, 110 years was the, uh, the number here of, of living, to, uh, living to fruition, reaching the peak here. And in verse 24, he says, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, the land which he swore to, the, to our fathers. Surely visit. Surely visit. He said, he will bring you out of this Egypt, which is never to be their permanent home, right? To the land. He'll bring you out of the cheap Rolex here into what is their true home. By the way, of course, later generations are going to see the thing that Joseph prayed for out of this to this here. But notice his perspective on this. He knows God will do it, but he does not live in a fantasy world. He understands that God is going to do this in the future. And he's not going to be an immediate part of it. He's not going to see the promised land with his alive body. And so he is resigned to reality here. He is not in a fantasy world, but friends, he is still living in faith. God will surely visit you. He will bless with his presence. And I want you to see here that he knows he's going to get there. It's just not going to be in this life. And so he says, send my bones on ahead. Send my bones on ahead. You see the, you see the, uh, the kind of the tension here. I'm going to make it to the promised land, to the promise that God has said. But I'm resigned to the reality that I'm not going to be walking and dancing there. And friends, I have a question for you this morning. Joseph understands that Egypt is not the final resting place. He's been faithful in Egypt. He served Egypt in its culture. But that is not where he knows home is. And friends, my question for you is this. Are there ways 
that Egypt or Babylon, in keeping with our series in First Peter, has become too much of your home? Are there values of Babylon and Egypt that are shaping you more than your true home? You might say, well, my home isn't in the physical place of Israel like the children of Israel's was. But friends, the home for anyone in Christ here, your true home is where God's promises are. That's your home. And so I have a question for you. Where do you want your bones sent? Where do you want your bones sent? Do you know God like Joseph did? Whether you are young or old, what do you desire to be remembered about you from your grandkids? What you live for? Egypt or home in the promises of God? Egypt or the eternal? Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 3, set your affections on things above your desires on things above. Let that eternal things be what governs your life here on this earth, not on things below. Don't buy the cheap Rolex. You see, Joseph did not want his life for all the decades that he had spent faithfully in his capacity and service to the nation of Egypt. He did not want that to define him. He did not want to be defined by a cheap Rolex. He wanted to be defined by this. By the timepiece of the eternal promise of God. Parents, this is what we're to be passing on to our kids. Grandparents, this is what you're to be passing on to your grandparents. Older to younger in this church, this is what we're to be passing on. Be defined by the eternal timepiece of God. Not by traditions, not by trends. This is what we need to be defined by. By our faith in a living God who always keeps His promises to the end. Your true home, your final home, is the sure promises of God. And you can send your bones on to there. You can send your bones on to there. Writer of Hebrews picks this up and he says in Hebrews 11.22, By faith Joseph, when he was dying... He speaks about the departure of the children of Israel and he gave instruction concerning his bones. What a strange thing, right? If you were just reading Hebrews 11. He gave instruction concerning his bones. Why is that statement so loaded? Because when he lived life backwards from the end, it governed how he lived. When he saw that God was working through his promises in his life, it framed his suffering in those who had wronged him. And when it came to die, he could say, give me the promise of God. Fernando Ortega has a song called Give Me Jesus. And he says this, In the morning when I rise, In the morning when I rise, In the morning when I rise, Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when I am alone, 
Oh, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when I come to die, oh, and when I come to die, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. The New Testament believer can listen to what Paul says in Corinthians and find that all the promises of God find their yes and so be it in Jesus Christ. The eternal promises of God are your true eternal home. Don't be distracted. Don't buy the cheap Rolex. Let's pray.